Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. This week, we're back to the subject of informal settlements and fire. I guess you may remember we had Daniel Antonellis from Kindling uh, some time ago in the podcast. Actually, super happy that Daniel has won the International Woman of the Year in Fire Award. Uh, amazing achievement, Daniel. So very well deserved. I'm so happy for you. And our podcast episode is quite a testimony to why this award went uh, to you. In the, today's episode, I am interviewing a scientist who works in South Africa, Professor Richard Walls, who is building his own fire group at Stellenbosch University in the South Africa. It's actually going quite amazing. You should watch them. They're doing so good, amazing stuff coming from, from their group. However, the reason why I've invited Richard is that he really has touched the subject. He has the field experience with this topic. He's seen these fires. He's seen these settlements. He's talking to local authorities. He's talking to people. He has participated in Project IRIS that touched the fires of informal settlements. And uh, his group has carried the full-scale experiments within that program. So today we're going to talk a little more about the engineering of this topic. What makes the challenges? How does the landscape of the informal settlements look like? Where do the fire challenges come from, actually? And how do we deal with them? Some really good ideas. How can we deal with them? And and a super important explanation why fire safety cannot be solved by one gadget. Why there's not a silver bullet that can solve the fire safety issue? Why do we need to look holistically at the problem? Unfortunately, we, we cannot go from 100 to zero fires. We cannot just prevent them all. But uh, with a very realistic view on, on this matter, Richard's group is trying to limit this as, as low as possible. Every fire prevented, every fire that did not spread to a massive event is someone's life saved, someone's property saved. So very well worth the effort. Furthermore, Richard has published a guideline of fire safety engineering in, in such spaces, and we're going to talk about this as well in the episode. So uh, real material, very useful material that actually can affect safety of a billion of people. That's, that's, I still find that astounding uh, how many people are under fire risk within these settlements. Anyway, before we jump into the episode, I just wanted to remind you that we're gathering the questions for the Q&A episode that's going to air at the very end of the month. So uh, I guess you still have some time to submit a question and I'm waiting for them. I'm happy to answer them. And if you send one to one of the podcast guests, I'll try to get them, answer it for you. I don't know if I can make it this month, but I will I will try. So yeah, that's it for the introductory talk. Let's spin the intro and let's jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski, and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. I'm today here with Professor Richard Walls from Stanbush University in South Africa. Hey, Richard. Great to have you in the show. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Fantastic. I love to have you on the show. Really happy that this finally happened. I've invited you to talk about one of the research topics that is very close to you or, or covered a lot by your group that I see. And, and it's also an important subject. It has been already in the podcast, but I would love to go into more technicalities of that. That is the fire issues within informal settlements and let's say more excluded part of the world's population, how they deal with, with fire safety issues. And you've been researching that a lot, I guess. It, it is in a way connected to geographical location, but may, maybe also some other factors. Let's start with how did you get involved in, in fire safety in informal settlement areas? Well, firstly, in terms of fire safety in general, I got it into it like everyone else, and that's by accident. Welcome uh, to the club. Was, <laughs> yep. So I don't think I've met anyone who knew they wanted to be a fire scientist or fire engineer when they were young. And then in terms of actually getting involved in formal settlements, uh, there are various things that I think helped me along the way. When I was young, I actually used to help out at a burn survivor home for kids 
So I'd go pick them up for Sunday school on Sunday morning and the kids were missing arms and eyes and legs and all sorts of crazy things from, from burns they'd experienced, mainly from informal settlements. So it, was a, it became a reality there. And then once we started doing fire research, just realized the big issue because it happens all the time. I mean, literally every day in Cape Town, there's a fire and across the, um, the country, 15 to 20 recorded fires per day. And that's the stacks of unrecorded. We don't even know what the numbers are when one or two or three homes burn down, but they're not, not reported. So it's a big issue. And that's, that's why we decided to start getting into it. To what extent is it like a recognized issue? Okay, you, you had your personal history of helping children. And I guess that brought you much closer, but on a like governmental scale or, or public opinion scale, Is it recognized as a severe issue? Like, is, is the scale really recognized that this? Because I guess every now and then you have a giant next biggest fire that happened and probably everyone talks about it for a week. But to, to what extent is, is, is a part of the, the public discussion? Pops up regularly because we have so many large fires. So a couple of times a year, 100, 200, 500, 1,000 homes burn down somewhere in the country. So, I mean, a thousand homes by international status is a massive disaster for us. It's sort of a regular occurrence. So it's part of ongoing discussion. So it'll often pop up, especially from the Department of Human Settlements, National Disaster Management. But the problem is, is it's part of a host of problems. As soon as you've got millions of people staying in informal settlements, everything's a problem. Health is a problem, sanitation is a problem, water supply, security, safety, jobs. So it's kind of a mess of everything you don't want in one place in terms of social challenges and providing infrastructure. So fire is one of many things, including flooding, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder to what extent is also a, a recent problem, because I guess this way of inhabiting a city uh, would exist for, for, for decades. But, but now with this like exponentially increasing population and in a way trend to, to get closer to cities, like the urbanization is a very strong trend worldwide. Is it something you observe like on the rise? It's definitely increasing. Urbanization is, is fueling this. If you speak to people who do disaster management and fire services in the more rural communities where they're on formal settlements, but they're, they're not dense, you mm -hmm. know, one home and then spread out. Fires happen, but a home goes down, maybe two homes go down. It's not a, a, a disastrous incident, but around our cities, our, our settlements are densifying fast. So what happens is when a fire does go, it spreads rapidly through the, these areas. And then, I mean, we're even seeing double story and them sprawling out in all directions. Some of it is in South Africa linked to the fact that uh, we had apartheid and specific laws are where people could and couldn't live. So when apartheid ended, that led to a lot of mu movement of people, which worsened the whole problem because many people were short of land. And so there are a host of challenges that go alongside this issue. But it's definitely on the rise and it's going to get worse, not better. I mean, if we look at the statistics for Africa and the number of people moving to our cities in the next 30 decades, we'll probably see the settlements double in size. Okay. And development of technology, like, you know, everyone has a phone now, everyone's charging a phone, everyone probably... Uh as a source or, or electrical devices they would use, this, is it also a trend that works towards the, let's say, increased probability of ignition? Do you observe any of this? Two sides. Well, firstly, in terms of, of actual fire cause, our data is fairly poor, simply because when you go out to an informal settlement incident and homes are burnt down, it's very mm. difficult to know what actually happened because everything's destroyed. Okay. And... They, they happen so regularly that there's not a proper fire investigation. So the fire department's standing there and they say, okay, what happened? Someone says, electrical fault. They go, okay, yeah, we're not going to get any better data than that. So it goes on. I mean, if you were drunk and knocked over your candle, you're not going to say that when all your neighbors have now lost their homes. Uh, so in terms of electrical issues, yes, that's definitely influencing it. And what you also see is that everyone needs electricity. So whether it's formal or informal, there's electricity. And if you have an informal settlement with no electrical infrastructure, they will run cables from you know, 10, 20, 100 meters from wherever, light gauge cables draped over roofs that prevent the fire trucks from coming in that cause short circuits. So overload transformers, so you have all sorts of other weird electrical problems. I mean, I've seen poles with, I don't know, 100 cables connected into it, and then they're running to different people's homes. This mock-up infrastructure like we we know like electrical uh, systems are are a challenge in the building like if you want to build a nuclear plant that's probably number one fire channel and she would uh, talk about it. and he, here 
like this um, uncontrolled growth of the electrical network can be can be really. Uh, how about water supply? Uh, that I mean, you need water to to fight fires, but I guess that there are better uses to water in provised uh, neighborhoods. So probably water is also a an issue for, for firefighting, at least. Yep. Water is a big issue. So uh, firstly, yes, the, the depending on which where you're in the country, some municipalities are doing better or worse. They provide standpipes, sort of a tap, and you can get water from it. So at least if there's quite a few of those, there's some water available. If there are hydrants for the fire department, they have their own problems because if you're short of water in your area, then, hey, why don't you just build your home over the fire hydrant? Then you get free water to your house, and you can even sell the water to your neighbor. So you have many incidents where there are fallouts and the fire department cannot find where the hydrants are, especially when it's exposed ones that people can build their homes on. If it's in the roadway and it's out the way, then maybe it's fine, but they can be tampered with, they can be vandalized. So water supply is an issue. And also most of the communities spring up on land that wasn't really suitable for formal homes because that's why they're there, they weren't built on. And so there sometimes is poor or non-existent water infrastructure, uh, or there isn't sufficient pressure. And where we had it, one of the biggest um, fires here a couple of years ago, 2017, where 2,000 homes burnt down, there were hydrants, but also at that stage, we had a severe drought. And so they dropped the pressure in the whole network because of the drought. They were at the hydrant, and then they couldn't get enough pressure for their lines. So yeah, water is a big issue, as as you correctly point out. I'm... Asking these questions to draw an image of how the landscape looks like. We're, we're, we're going to, in the second part of the episode, going to talk about potential solutions and how to approach them. But first, I would love myself and my listeners to, to understand what kind of environment we are in. So um, continue this topic on how the, the fire environment in, inside an informal settlement looks like. Question that comes to my mind, how big are these Informal settlements. I guess they range in scale. The last time I heard, I'm 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 going to lie about the exact number, but it was over 200 settlements in Cape Town, and they range in size from a couple of dozen homes to oh, I'm trying to think what the biggest one. You're talking a few hundred thousand, but often it's it's difficult to define accurately because even it merges from formal. Then you've got formal with backyard dwellings, where you've got one formal home and three backyard dwellings, which are shacks. So now, is that formal or informal? Because there's three informal to one formal. So it's sort of this mishmash, and then that merges into the informal settlement. So there aren't kind of clear boundaries. It's just this sprawl of urban homes. But, I mean, a fire can rip through 50 or 100 meters of homes continuous, and then whatever with their And are. how densely are they packed? Like, it's like, I know... Three houses and then a street and then three houses, or is like a continuous row of houses that, that goes through the horizon? Depends on where you are. If in the sort of more rural areas, further away from job opportunities, then you may have a home, bit of land, home, okay. bit of land. I mean, maybe there are even goats and cattle around and a little bit of farming. And then as you get closer to the city, they get denser and denser. The densest um, settlements right near sort of central business districts and perceived areas of work it's usually wall-to-wall homes, and then there might be a meter or two pathway. And then you know, if there's a roadway, then the road's there. But I mean, people's homes can literally be built right up to the road. So their front door opens into the, the road, and uh, maybe they even encroach on the road. So it ranges. But around cities, we're even starting to see double-story going up along riverbanks. So I mean, a, flood zone, a 50-year flood zone, so then people build their homes because there's no other homes, and then the flood, and they get flooded once a year or once every five years. So, uh, but p- 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 fairly dense, normally not continuous for kilometers. Normally there's at least some amount of road infrastructure, break businesses, something every between 50, 100, 200 meters or so, depending on where you are. Apologies if I'm asking ignorant white guys questions, but uh, I, I just don't know. I honestly never, n- never yeah. been in one, never, never saw one. And then I learned that yeah. 1 billion but, people or so lives in this, this condition. So actually that's, that's yeah. quite devastating. And I, I had Daniel Antonelli's on, on the episodes, the show, and that was like, wow, that, that was such an impactful discussion and, and like almost making tears because of, of the impact, like, wow. This, this thing really impacts billions with B in, in the farm. And you've also mentioned you've seen multi-stories. I guess the, the trend to understand how how these uh, communities develop, grow, and, and 
I guess they have some cycles w- within them. So, so people want to be closer to the work, to the potential sources of income. This also probably generates a more interest of, of people staying in the proximity of the more densely populated. So, so it increases also, in a way, the attractiveness of this particular place because there's more people, more chances, more, more, more stuff. So, so I assume you've mentioned that they start growing up like into multi-story. Is this something you've already seen or is this uh, some sort of new development? It's newish, so they're they're starting to appear now. So it's not common. I mean, I understand in India. I mean, there it's it's common. You have multi-story, um, whatever word, different countries have different words they use. But it's in other countries, it's it's commonplace. Here, it's starting to come. Also, just the materials people use don't often allow them to go many stories up because it's steel sheeting and light mm-hmm. timber. So building double, triple story. But it's it's coming, and we we did a large scale experiment on a double story. And man, that's messy. Um, when you've got a double story in formal dwelling, it can collapse anyway. You double the density. It, the fire department can't get in there. Suppression it is becoming an issue. So you can't just run into it like a normal building because mm. it's probably going to fall on you. So just the practicalities of it are an absolute And, and to mess. close this part, what was the population density? Is it a family per dwelling? That once again ranges. So... Some areas you, for instance, find predominantly single males. So especially when that, but then they will often okay. have a room. So what's even have what's called shack farming. So you'll have a landowner, even though they're not the owner, or they're the sort of the, the dwelling owner, and they may have six rooms and each one has one person in it. Sometimes you'll find a family, so a family of four. Then the cousin from the Eastern Cape moves, and then you've got a family of five, family of six, family of eight. So the homes are sort of constantly adjusting as children and family members move around the country for survival, basically. So it, it really ranges the, the home size, the family size. And, and now materials. You've mentioned uh, steel sheets, uh, lightweight timber. So, so it's all I- improvised from this sort of materials, like whatever's available? Yeah, people are extremely resourceful. I mean, I'm, I'm quite impressed by the construction techniques and, and the resourcefulness in getting hold of things. So anything that comes out of anywhere can end up in a formal settlement. So there's not like a code of practice. You find timber, you find old sheeting, steel sheeting, you find plastic, you find nylon curtains and linings and cardboard and paper and hell, you name it, it's there. So there's a a massive informal market for secondhand materials. So scrap getting removed from construction site or sometimes even just stolen. Uh, so anything can e- end up there and then is used and reused. So, I mean, from a reuse sustainability perspective, I mean, we have some of the highest recycling rates in the world in South Africa because everything gets reused. Yeah, and, and materials like concrete blocks or lightweight concrete blocks, bricks, uh, also, or, or these are like not very, you don't see them that often? To some extent, less commonly. Sometimes you will see, for instance, people who've been there longer or a little bit more resources when they'll cast a concrete slab for their, their home. You do find, once again, I was mentioning the informal formal mix. So you often have a brick home that used to be there now with six, eight, 10, 50 homes in the back. So you do find brick homes in and amongst. Less built in the settlements because people often aren't going to spend the money on upgrading their home where they know they've got a chance of losing their home, it burning down, and various other reasons. So often with lack of, of tenure comes lack of willingness to put money into your home and there's competing challenges. So there's less putting effort and putting resources into formalizing your home. It may be quite interesting, but when my institute was formed, uh, Building Research Institute where I work, it was an effort after the, the Second World War. And Poland at that moment was a completely destroyed country. Like Everything was either destroyed or stolen. And because of that, a lot of people would resource themselves to use these improvised materials in, in a very similar way. Um, however, here it would be a lot of clay buildings, a lot of clay, straw, composite things, using straw and uh, lightweight timber to, to cover the, the roofs. Uh, Actually, I think my institute has done a lot of research in its early days. I mean, we're talking 75 years ago, so so that's quite old research. But I think there was a lot of research on use of of readily available natural materials in, let's say, some sort of of fairly safe build-up of the whole country. So so actually, I I must go to the library of ITB and and seek in. It could be interesting to to tap into the mind of, of researchers from mid-50s on how uh, similar 
problem was was solved in 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 middle of Europe. However, I think I think clay was one of the most popular materials. In. Yeah, I think often the problem is, is the settlements are in cities, so we actually don't have access to those materials. I mean, it's just an open piece of land, so you can't really mine very much, and there's lack of support. And just the problem is the water as well. Yeah, yeah and then the the speed the populations are growing at often just means that it, it's very difficult to do it, and some of it also comes from. There was a historical, back in 1994, when Mandela came to power, they said, all right, everyone will get a home, uh, which was great at the time. I mean, it was, a, it was a good effort, but the population grew too fast and some management issues and various other things. So the idea wasn't, we're going to upgrade informal homes, we're going to build you formal homes. And as the years have gone by, policy you can start seeing is starting to change when there there's the... It may not be written down, but this acknowledgement is, whoops, we're actually not keeping up and we're not going to get there. We're not going to be able to provide enough formal homes. So how do we rather do in-situ upgrading of the informal to improve them? So that that is a subtle policy shift you're definitely seeing. And that's where these sorts of things can come in. Some amount of brick, better construction materials, at least you know, concrete slabs. That that can help to some extent as that is formalized, but also in a bit of reblocking, rearranging homes, there's better layouts, a bit of grid layouts, etc. So that's definitely going to be part of the solution in the coming years, but it's it's not an easy process doing that. Okay, now um, let's talk a little about fires in in informal settlements. You you were a guest at the NFPA podcast, and I'm going to link to that episode where you gave like a really illustrative description of of how a fire in an informal settlement looks like, and I, I would recommend everyone to to take a listen on on that one as well. But l- l- let's give a mini version in here. So what makes the fire so devastating, like uh, catastrophically devastating? And under what conditions this fire turns? You said you have an incidence with tens or hundreds of houses every now and then. And then two, three times a year, you would have a one that involves a few thousand. So what makes this, this growth from a ten, a hundred to, to a catastrophic size? Is it management, like the local conditions, weather? A lot of things play into it. Often it's where it's kind of like a a wildland fire at the end of the day. You've got a continuous sprawl of fuel. And same thing with wildland fires. When the wind gets beyond a certain stage, it's going to push through that forest and burn it all down. The the settlements do range in terms of resources for response. So some have better fire departments nearby. Some have virtually non-existent fire departments. The density ranges. So if you have dense settlements with poor access, that's where you've got the biggest headache. Because also, as I was mentioning earlier, most of the settlements are built out the way, so they have limited road infrastructure and access. And then when a big incident starts happening, people evacuate. So they're trying to save their beds and chairs and TVs and cars and whatever else there might be there. And it blocks the road, so then the fire department can't even come in. And when you've got lots of fuel all on top of each other, I mean, it just moves from one dwelling to the next to the next. I mean, we did an experiment with 20 full-scale homes and all of them were alight in five minutes. So it literally ripped straight through 20 homes, five minutes, there you go. And you see that it moves with frightening speed. Sometimes it'll hit, let's say, if there's a bit of vegetation, you might have branding. We think branding occurs. We think there must be, if you've got enough plastics and pretty much everything there, there must be some amount of brands being thrown, but that's never been quantified. We don't have a handle of how much it's influencing it. But just flame impingement. I mean, you have, when the homes are that close, you've got flame impingement from one dwelling to the next. And the problem is, is the dwellings are permeable. So there's always a hole somewhere. So there's always, the, between the wall and the roof, there's a bit of a gap. And then to stop winds, you stick a bit of newspaper or cardboard or nylon there. And then it catches and it sucks it into the home, flash over, and then next one. So small scale, it kind of looks like a whole bunch of little enclosure fires. On a large scale, it looks like a... A wildland fire. With the 20 dwelling, you, you refer to the experiments in the Project Iris, I, I guess. Isn't that the paper that got Picklestone Award? Yep, yep. Thankfully, uh, you, you reviewed but, it for us. and It was amazing. I recommend that to, to everyone. So yeah, that was, um, yeah, colleagues, colleague wrote and it was part of it and done with, with Ray, etc. So yeah, that was that was frightening. What was even great is, uh, I have to admit, even when you're wrong, we were like debating how long is this experiment going to take and we're about to set on fire. Yeah. We're setting up thinking, yeah, maybe 20 minutes or so. Though. Bang, set it, boom, experiment done. Five minutes, like, whoops, that was quick. Yeah. Um I think at 17 minutes, there was one left standing. And the funniest thing was we thought that was the, the home that was going to get the toast, most roasted mm-hmm. of all because it had a timber dwelling on each side. 
And uh, what happened was, is that the timber homes around it burned so ferociously, no air could get to oxygen it. Oxygen staffed. It was just crazy. The, the f- wow. It was oxygen staffed totally. So it was the last home standing and we thought it was going to be the one that was the most... Uh, <laughs> uh, how, how, how was it propagating? Was it like through radiation, through, through um, convective heating, flame it seems contact? primarily flame contact, flame impingement, um, especially in that experiment. From what okay. we see, it is primarily flame dominated because you have a lot of flaming coming out of the big dwellings and a lot of thin exposed materials, but it is hard to break up the balance between radiation, ignition and not. There must be a combination. I mean, there's always going to be radiation at the same time. The, the items are um, flames impinging or you have preheating and then the flame ignites it. So it's, it's between those two. Um, as I said, there probably is some, some branding as well, but if pr- flame impingement appears, in my opinion, to dominate the, the settlements are so complex and so many materials and so many different f- flames going in different directions that you would find exceptions to that. But then again, if you would consider single ones from this uh, experiment, uh, how long would one last? Like two, three minutes, five minutes, yeah, ten minutes? Yeah, you're talking a couple of minutes. So often you'll have collapse five minutes, ten minutes after ignition, especially when it's light timber. I mean, the panel's falling apart. But it, it depends in real settlements how people have built. Some people, man, they, they build really well. And those, those homes are solid, they'll burn out, but they'll stay standing. Other homes, I mean, if pe- people have poor access to materials, I mean, they'll fall apart within minutes. And especially when someone, you've got a small dwelling, someone knocks over a paraffin stove, you're talking a minute to flash over from ignition to flash over, maybe you know, two, three, four minutes, depending on what's ignited first. So it, it moves fast. There are crazy times. And I've been to some fires, I've seen some exponentially growing fires, I know what you're talking about, that this is this bad boy is growing a little quicker than we've expected. And you feel the heat and yeah, I know what you're talking about. Really interesting that these experiments, full-scale experiments happen. It, it's really nice that, that this research also happens when where the problem is, because it gives you like local comprehension of what the problem is. You, you see it every day. It's not a fancy university from overseas doing... A, research on their polished campus and doing this building, a, going to Castorama or whatever shops, building shops you have, buying a bunch of good materials and wondering, this doesn't burn that badly as they, as they said, actually. I liked it a lot. Now, um, before we've talked, you've mentioned that you have worked on a project to deliver some guidance related to building a more fire-safe uh, environment in, in this type of of dwelling, so so maybe let's venture there. How how this this work started? Like whose initiative was that, and who paid for that? That's actually yeah. quite interesting. Who so, paid for that? Well, a couple of things. So following Iris, I mean, we had a project with University of Edinburgh. So various work done together collaboratively, and then projects along the way. Then our Department of Human Settlements, the Western Cape Department of Human Government Department, they approached us, and well, from a relationship, they said, well, could we provide some guidance to help? address the fire safety of these homes because it's an ongoing challenge. And so we started and then started putting together and eventually actually became a book. That wasn't the the option at the beginning, but we published a book. It's a fire safety engineering guideline for formal settlements. And we decided to release it free of charge. But to make the project possible at that time, we also had funding from the Lloyd's Register Foundation. So we used that as co-funding to make it possible. The first phase then was a full book, 130 pages are results from various experiments and analyses and all sorts of stuff put in one place, but it's written for practitioners, NGOs, etc. It's not a fire science textbook. And then there was a second phase, which has just been wrapped up and it's going to be launched shortly with training videos, brochures and posters. So it's a range of training materials. Once we're in, everything free, uh, same also funded by the Western Cape Department of Human Settlements and the Lloyd's Register. So they that is going to be released imminently any day now, probably early next year. South Africa shuts down like totally over December. Nothing happens then. Why? It's it's Christmas. It's Christmas and it's our summer holidays. So uh, it's it's the ah. same thing as July in, in Europe or August. So that'll be be out shortly. We had an um, excellent uh, photographer or um, videographer, Justin Sullivan, who has real life footage in settlements from when they're burning. So the images you see are then are frightening when you actually see people running around homes burning, you know, real incidents and what's happening. And that's used to tell the story and develop the training material. Brilliant idea that you not only settle on a book, but go with uh, videos, instruction material. 
that will make the book alive. That that will make the book book go on. So please introduce me like to, to this framework. Uh, like where does even one start when when they want to to make uh, an effect on on a local community or, or want to help? I think one of the first things is that people think fire safety is about some silver bullet that there's some magical thing. If I issue gadget A, paint B, layout C to the community, we can make fire problems go away. And I think the biggest message we're trying to communicate is what fire safety codes have been saying all along, but they've just never said it to informal settlements, is this is not a quick fix. This is not you can walk in, do you know, do one thing, walk away, and it's done. It requires a holistic, ongoing, intensive effort to reduce the number of incidents. So we can't take 100 fires and suddenly have zero fires. We can maybe take 100 fires and have 50. 50 is still way too high, but hey, at least it's not 100. So the idea is how do we start tackling multiple aspects and guidelines are provided regarding it, looking at all the different aspects you face, whether it's risk of ignition, you know, what, are, what is causing the fires and how do we start reducing that? How do the fires spread? So how can we improve construction materials? Products do we use, layouts, what sort of safety distances. In reality, you often can't get those safety distances. They're just too many people. But if you can, where should you put them? I mean, we were in a community last week and working with the community, looking at re-blocking, literally moving little blocks around the community saying, okay, where, what safety distances do we have? And then just realizing it's an ongoing effort from many people. And I suppose a different perspective is what a friend once described her job as is sometimes we can just be a handbrake on stupidity in that if all we do is stop bad solutions from happening, I think it's still a step forward because a big incident happens, the politicians are under pressure, so a great salesman arrives, sells the gadget to you know, a ball that you throw in and it explodes and, hey, it's going to put out the fire and we test them like, no, it's not. So even if it's just stopping bad interventions, because it's it's rife with bad interventions and quick fixes. So, well, no, that's not going to fix it. But hey, let's put a little bit more effort into the water infrastructure, into homes. If we are going to get smoke detector devices or heat detector devices, which homes should they go into? Let's target the high-risk community homes, the denser settlements. So big picture, putting it all together and slowly working at it and also building relations with the fire department. The fire department are key. They arrive and they get stoned with bricks because of a whole bunch of things we can maybe chat about just now. It's it's a bit of a mess and often it's not something they've done wrong, but it's just perceptions about who they are, what they do, and you know, no, you're not giving us enough service. So it's a range of things, but I'd say it's it's a basket of interventions. It's not one thing and it's not quick. It's not cheap. And it's often symptoms of other issues. So can fire be part of the conversation when we're going to upgrade homes? Can fire be part of the conversation when workers go into the community to provide water, to provide electrical infrastructure, to look into the high-risk homes and identify, oh, you know, here's a home with alcoholism where it's a big issue. Maybe that's the home that should get the first detector devices if we are going to put those in. So th those are sort of things that we can start looking towards. And to what extent the... Uh... I don't know even who city the society works on on improving the conditions in these settlements. Like, like would the city put in I don't know a new pipes, a new electrical line that's underground and to help like fix the issue. I guess then that's when you can reintervene. Maybe try to change the density, try to build some separations. Is this how you intervene or? Depends, because I think you make a very good point is who who's involved. And one of the problems is multiple groups are involved. You, For instance, you have the Department of Human Settlements who oversees, but then you've got Department of Water and Sanitation who provides water infrastructure. You've got electrical supply. You have um, health. So you have a whole bunch of groups, including communities, and often kind of miss, we think of this community as this homogenous, all think the same, all do the thing, which is not true. I mean, the, the communities are just like you and me. You know, I vote for you, A and you vote for B and we don't get along and I'm trying to get my political party now to be the representative. So we don't get along. And uh, that influences community cohesion and approaches. So many groups involved and normally it comes more from your department, human settlements, etc., the upgrading, but it requires multiple people involved. So that's one of 
well, one of the big problems. It's everyone's problem and no one's problem all at once. So it's kind of like, hey, well, it's not exactly my problem. So I'm going to leave it for the fire department because it's a fire thing. So they must fall in this fire department. Well, it spreads so much because it's a home problem. So it's someone else's. But it falls between multiple groups, which makes it more difficult to address and slower to address. So that, that's going to be an ongoing problem we have forevermore. Who's the target that you would like to aim with, with this knowledge? I mean, is it an individual owner of a of household? Is it the local authorities? Is it the fire department? If one in a hundred people redesign their settlement to, to become safer, this this does not this is your house that stood after an experiment, you know, it's it doesn't change the landscape. Then again, uh, if an authority goes and would say, I have to rebuild a square kilometer of city infrastructure, roads, uh, water, electricity, there's no money uh, to, to do that on that scale. So which quarter I'm going to start with? And once they start there, probably the density will dramatically increase in that area. Then the firefighters with their challenges. So that that's... Wow, that's a that's a hell of political landmine field to, to navigate. If in terms of targeting, what I'm hoping is that the work we've produced will influence different groups. Firstly, as I said, your your government departments, human settlements, water and sanitation, etc. NGOs, there's a lot of non-governmental organizations, churches, different groups active in communities, and they're not fire trained. But hey, if there's some basic things that they can at least think gee, maybe putting a spray on polyurethane on people's walls is a bad idea because that has been done. So, you know, let's let's spray on basically petrol on people's walls and see what happens. A petrol, petrol that produces cyanide when burns. Yeah. A better kind of petrol. We literally had this conversation with a, a, an organization. They were doing it to offset carbon emissions. So they were insulating people's homes and they had a spray on polyurethane. And as they said, I was like, wow, this is a bad idea. And the thing is, there's often no testing because it's a dual system. You have informal is is inherently informal. There's no testing and no requirements to roll out something in a settlement. It And you also, you can't develop a dual standard system. You can't say, okay, formal homes require the following standards. Hey, now we've got the second code for informal settlement. So it's like a subclass because then you're actually saying it's okay to have substandard safety, which doesn't exist. So either it's everything or nothing. And developing something in between is virtually impossible because then it, it calls into question the entire code. From the low framework perspective, right? Yep. So that, that's why we... But then again, you said that uh, you know you cannot solve 100 out yep. of 100 fires. Yep. But even if you solve like 50, that's already yep. a big change. But that's why we intentionally call our work guidelines. You can't actually call it a okay. code or a standard because it can't be a dual running code environment. And people have proposed, hey, let's have a code for testing such and such. Like, nope, not going to work. You can at least have a guideline like, hey, testing this is, and you get such results is, is bad. We had discussions with guys working in Bangladesh on the ground, doing excellent work in Cox's Bazaar. And they said, we've been issued the following material. How can we test it? We don't have a standard that it has to adhere to, but we gave them some guidelines. Us and Jim Milkey from Maryland, some details went through, and they sent us videos, and they did some excellent work, um, Paul Chamberlain and the guys on the ground there. And it was just some quick testing, and went, wow, this is probably a bit worse than we thought. It didn't fail the test, because there isn't a test, but at least they could go to the decision makers and say, guys, this, we're, we're looking at problem. We're putting in sheeting that is combustible. It's got hydrocarbons in. Look at the flame spread. Bad idea, can we reconsider? So those are the sort of things that at least if the work can have some impact in advising on what is probably a poor choice of materials, poor choice of devices. As it also, I mean, throwing devices, it was great. I mean, a company was selling these little uh, little ball, you throw it in, it's got a dry chemical powder and basically blows up. And I mean, I've seen them, they, they look great on the internet. Man, you throw it into a little contained box and bang, the fire's gone. And so we did it. We built a full-scale home. We threw in 10 of these things and it didn't even vaguely put out the fire because it would knock it locally. Everything was above spontaneous ignition. So the fire just kept coming back. And, and stuff like that at least shows to decision makers that that may not be effective for what we want. For a small fire, when you've got really good aim, where you can throw like a baseball player, you know, that, that's fine. But if you're under pressure and you miss and it's a big fire, you're, you're basically wasting your money. So that's where... We're hoping the guidelines have impact, that it can inform any decision about fire safety devices, decisions, layouts, etc. But it's not going to be a miraculous thing. It's not going to happen quickly. 
and any impact is at least more than than we used to have. Um, that that's our hope. Now you started talking about fire brigade and the challenges that they face. Like, how how big is the possibilities on the intervention side? Like, to what extent you can even intervene in their? Uh, if I my house was burning, I would expect fifteen minutes later there's a fire department at my house. Thirty minutes into the event, it should be under control because they they already have water inside. They have reconnaissance sounds that they know what's happening around. That's what I would expect in 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 here. I guess the expectation in an informal layout like to start even with to to what extent they know the layout of the of the informal settlement because it's it's alive, right? So there there are a couple of things. Firstly, one of the big headaches, and I'm hoping our country can fix it soon, is we don't have a unified nine one one number. So there's actually a ten digit number you're supposed to call, for instance. Uh, for Cape Town, 021-480-7700. And if I asked you to repeat that number to me now, you wouldn't be able to repeat what right. I just said. So most people don't know the fire department number. There is a shorter version, but sometimes that doesn't work for from cellular phones. So a regular headache we have is people phone the police. Then the police are obliged to go out, investigate it, and relay it to the fire department. So that may add 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And so that is something that we have to solve from government level, a unified call-out number. Independent of that, then, yes, are some fire departments are very good. They respond quickly. They're well-trained. They lack resources, but they're really doing a good job. I mean, I've been very impressed with a lot of what the city of Cape Town, Breda Valley are, are doing. Other cities, they have six fire trucks for a population of a few million frightening the the level of services that they're able to offer. When they arrive, the timeline looks a little different because normally you arrive at an address. But imagine you get called out to a settlement and you can see the fire in the distance, maybe. But you like, how on earth do I even get there? Because sometimes there isn't formal infrastructure to get there. If now also the community phone, the police department, the police department came, you are now arrived 30 minutes late. You may be three minutes from call out, but you're 30 minutes late according to the community. So they start throwing rocks at you. And now you're trying to defend yourself from the community and run hoses and you can't find the hydrants. Then you're trying to get the trucks in and you've got low hanging electrical lines. So you actually can't get your truck through or you just have to drive through electrical lines and hope you don't electrocute yourself. And then you set up your hoses, you run your hoses. And a big challenge they find is that people are desperate. And so they see a hose, but the fire department is strategically putting out fires, but not your home. My home's burning, but they're putting out a home two away. I see the see the hose. I've got a knife. I want to save everything I own. So I slash the hose and I turn the hose onto my dwelling. Suddenly the water is everywhere. You drain the tanker. It's a total mess. You've got to run new hoses. So cutting of hoses is a big deal. And it appears it's mainly just out of desperation. There's There's no data on it. And I mean, I saw a very interesting one further, just in terms of life safety, that a colleague of mine or a friend of mine is a firefighter. And we've recently had a lot of blackouts in the country. So a entrepreneurial community resident was selling gas bottles into the community. So they had about, I don't know, 20 LP gas bottles in their home. And that home caught fire. And I have pictures of the home afterwards. I am amazed that it didn't level the whole area. Somehow the emergency relief valves must have been triggered. I mean, somehow they didn't detonate it because I've seen other incidents where the LP gas is detonated and it's frightening. And uh, But that's the sort of thing the fire department may have to respond to when you've got 20 LP gas cylinders in one home. No one's burning. You probably don't even know this and you arrive and you're fighting it and then suddenly, boom. Um, it, it's a real safety challenge and then you have homes collapsing onto you and yeah you name it 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 goes down there if you put it in into the context of your experiment with 20 dwellings with this extreme fire spread i mean the fire may be like three blocks away when when you arrive when it's yep. uh, when it's really a really bad day and in, in such a fire i guess the extinguishing is, is not an option anymore yeah, you, you're trying to contain. So, I mean, they just yeah. on the if they can get hose lines to it, they can normally do a lot of damage because there are they are enclosures. But it it just is the question of can they get enough hose lines close enough? And if you've got a winding settlement, it can spread around you or it can jump. Uh, that's a, it's something we want to study is the branding issue, and it it definitely does jump. We're just not sure how much. 
And then, then you're chasing the fire or it's, it's on both sides, you and around you. So the fire department does a good job. They can kill the fire, but getting there and access is a huge issue. And so roadways, access ways are, are important and they get blocked. But you do have anecdotal cases where the community helps. In, in Milnerton, there's one in, in, in an area called Danoon, there's one community that's particularly proactive. There's a leader there. When a fire breaks out, she makes sure that they clear the road. And so they're actually moving people's possessions out the way to make sure the fire truck can get in. And that is a huge thing might sound really simple, but it, it could result in many more homes being saved if the fire truck can actually get access. And, and I mean, people are desperate. If, if you're trying to save everything you own, you're not really worried about the truck access, but at least if there are enough people around and they move stuff, it helps. And sharing good experiences as this, is it even possible between the, the communities? Can be. And I think that's going to be an important aspect, central aspect going forward is that community engagement, there needs to be budget allocated for people to be ongoing in the community, training, doing work. I, I really want to build a little mobile dwelling that the, the, the fire department can arrive, take it off the truck, burn it down with the community around, engage with them, train with them, and then leave. If you leave it there, it'll get stolen normally. So um, you actually have to do some mobile fire B training. Burn it, burn it before yep. it gets stolen. <laughs> um, and, then, and then you pick it up, you make it a steel frame, take it away. So... Community engagement will always be key, but also it's not something quick because communities change, people come, people go. The more that's done, the better. And once again, our target is from 100 fires to 50 fires, not 100 to zero. Well, any reduction in damage we can do is, is fantastic. I think there's a powerful way out of, maybe not the way completely out, but towards a better solution, better environment. Now for the end, I, I had Danielle in, in here, we were talking a lot about NGOs and what can be done, how they engage, and I absolutely love the work they, they are doing. You as a scientist, how, how do you see like the research gaps? Like where can fire science, fire academia come in? And what would be the most important research gap you see? The, the, the most important people are those making the difference on the ground. Be it okay. the NGOs, be it the fire departments, the Department of Human Settlements, they're, they're really important. I, sitting in my office in my university ivory tower, it's very difficult to make a direct impact. However, if we can provide the tools they need for simple assessments, because people aren't trained in fire safety. So just working with a community um, NGO last week, and I, I, they're like, oh, what distance must we put these homes? And I was like, well, nothing really. It's always going to jump eventually. But you know, one meter, it'll always spread. Two meters, in most cases, it'll spread by three meters you're starting to get to a stage where you may have, have uh, stopped at four meters, probably. Simple tools to help the important people is where I think the research will be valuable and assessing any intervention. So that's why one of the papers we did was assessing suppression methods. What happens if we have these throwing gadgets? How do they work? How do they not work? If we have to detect devices, what's the limitations of them? Nuisance alarms, rollouts, sensitivities, artificial intelligence, building those in, GIS mapping, risk assessment. So it's it's providing support to the people that matter most. I also think this, what you said about these gadgets, like debunking myths, adding credibility to solutions, like showing real impact of things, measuring, quantifying, I guess this is something that NGOs will have difficulties in, in, in having and they, they need to receive it from us. And when we arm them with, with good weapons like, like knowledge, I guess some, some, something good can come out of that. So, so I, I really enjoy this answer. And, and now for the end, tell, tell me how's it going in, in Stellenbosch. How, I, I'm super impressed by how your group is going and all the stuff happening around you, all the courses that you go that are so well attended. It's amazing. Sure. So we, we are growing, we are going. It's, it's been a chaotic ride the last few years, but we've been very fortunate. We've had good support. I mean, we've worked with, with various organizations, starting out with Edinburgh and then recently a variety of, of groups. But what's positive is that there's a big need for fire engineering education and research. And so there was a bit of a void and an African void. And what's really been nice is the team that has developed I mean, if you look at our PhDs at the moment, we've got someone who's going to go back to Nigeria and hopefully set up a research group there. We've got people from Zambia, Ethiopia, India, Chile, and then 
attendees at our courses from all sorts of different countries. So what's nice is it's starting to get a developing world and especially African flavor in terms of training the trainer. And so hopefully long term, the people from here can go back and establish courses across. And we've we've had generous support as at Royal Academy of Engineering, Lloyd's Register, um, had the Almond Bursary recently supporting developing world and moving online. So we've had a couple of hundred engineers trained in structural fire, fire dynamics. I think we're getting a new lab. Very exciting. Um, wow. So we've got a little 400 square meter lab, hopefully have a large scale hood and whatever we can afford, we'll get. That's massive. That, that's massive improvement. Yeah. Yeah. So bit by bit, all is moving. We, we kind of figure it out as we go. We, we weren't privileged to have a, an ITB or a Maryland WPI, Lund Edinburgh uh, education, but we just sort of muddle along and <laughs> figure it out and burn stuff and learn afterwards uh, what yeah. we just burnt. <laughs> so ob- ob- observing it from the side, uh, you're doing it the right way. Even the righter way than many of the uh, noble associations and uh, noble institutions. So congratulations of, of that. If that's an instinct, you, you have a good one. Keep following it, that, Richard. It, it works. Yeah, no, uh, so it's all as well, but thanks. Yeah, it's been good Good being here today. Thank you, Richard, for, for this interview. I, I, I hope we've touched uh, many important things about the problem for one billion of people from an engineer's perspective that there has been a lot of, in, in this interview. But that, that's the environment you have to navigate. That there, there just is that many aspects of the same problem and one gunpowder ball will not, uh, will not solve that for sure. Th- thank you so much for coming to the show. No, thanks a lot. Good being here. And that's it. I always find the informal settlement fire subject. On one hand, depressing. On the other hand, uh, chance to really deliver fire safety to so many people. Like It's really meaningful. You know, I always had this feeling, especially when I talked to Danielle some time ago. Like, you know, we, we do all this fancy modeling, all these crazy efforts to improve Safety of a skyscraper, which is already super safe by like 1%. And here people are without fundamentally any fire safety. Changing any through some is way, way bigger impact that me or you will ever have in in our modern beautiful world. That's, yeah, well, depressing, but an opportunity to, to really make an impact for sure. Thank you, Richard, for for making the impact. Thank you for your research. Thank you for thinking as an engineer. Thank you for providing answers and guidelines and building resources so so people can battle the the problem. Uh, It was a very honest and at points uh, difficult conversation, but I'm I'm very happy. I'm very happy we had it, even if I don't sound like that. I'm depressed. Well, that would be it uh, for today's episode. And as usual, well, Remember about the q and I, I still need the questions. Come on, guys. And I need you to come here next week. And uh, see you there then. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.